Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. Hopefully you recall Genesis 36 was a recap of the generations of Esau. The book of Genesis is organized in various ways, but one of the most obvious ways is the beginning of a chapter with the generations of and then the listing of all those who descended from a particular person. And Esau, of course, is the son of Isaac who is not chosen to be the continuer of the covenant line, the covenant of grace. Uh, Yet he was still important and God showed himself faithful to the promises he made to Esau. And that chapter 36 puts that on full historic display. Now we go to the last generations of in Genesis. Starting at chapter 37 all the way to the end of chapter 50, we have before us the generations of Jacob, the chosen heir of God's covenant of grace. In fact, Jacob was given the name Israel because he would become the nation of Israel, which ultimately would bring forth the Lord Jesus, who was promised in the beginning of Genesis the unfolding of God's plan for salvation before our eyes in this passage, in this section of the book now, chapter 37 to the end of the book, the true history of God's providential watch care for his plan of redemption. Providence, providential. These are terms we'll hear often because they are descriptive of what unfolds in Genesis. We speak of the sovereignty of God, that God is king over all things. His providential care is his sovereignty personalized, practicalized in everyday events. As I prepare to read this chapter, we've been reading long sections. I'm encouraged by the words of Paul to Timothy, who is a pastor at Ephesus. He said to Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. By God's grace, we'll see all of that this morning. The public uh, reading of the word, exhortation, which is usually a word meant for preaching, and teaching, explanation of things we had not uh, previously known or maybe be refreshed on things that are taught in Scripture. This is God's holy word. I'll start at verse 1 of Genesis 37 and read the entire chapter. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers... They hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told his, 
told it to his father and to his brothers. His father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Then he saw, they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midian traders passed by and They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether this is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midian, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O oh Lord, we come to your holy word with great reverence. We can see the majesty of the style and the consent of all the parts. You have made known what we need to know about this world our predicament, in our participation in the next through Jesus. 
As we begin these chapters about the life of the patriarch Joseph and Jacob's family, please give us attentive minds and humble hearts. Where our lives need to come under a microscope, let us not be proud. Lord, give us a willingness to learn and to be changed. And Lord, by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, please assure us again of the the sure salvation that you have accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. Please give us strength then to follow you for all of our days. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are now beginning the saga of Jacob's sons through the special favor shown to Joseph. More practically, the rest of Genesis 37 to the end, it's really a display of God's providential watch care over all things. It's not just applicable in the big things. You'll see for providence to be true, it has to be applicable in all the small things too. This should provide you with great comfort. I don't know where you find yourself this morning, but as you look at your life right now, the immediacy of what's just happened before, what you're wondering what might happen in the future. This message about God's providence on such clear display here in the life of Joseph, but in the life of Israel, is a sure assurance to all of us about the specifics of your life as well. Now, we're going to come to know some of the -the behind-the-scenes stuff because the Bible tells us here. You won't always know. Most of the time, you won't know the -the behind-the-scenes stuff in your life. But you will see that God has his hand upon every aspect. In the general truths that are so well displayed here will serve as a comfort for all of your days. You'll notice in the passage, it's kind of tragic really, 20 different times the word brothers is used or brother. But you probably notice about 10 times hate or jealousy, the word kill, conspiring, these all are woven throughout the story. We get the the sense of dysfunction about Jacob's house, the sense of of no control, a bit of anarchy, if you might, chaos, we might think. But we come to realize that for all that's swirling around, much of what we can appreciate in our own lives when they become messy, it's not out of the control of God. It's not out of his watch care. So we see these two truths being, at the same time, able to be held. There's this seeming craziness that's going on and unfolding. It's falling apart. It's unraveling, we might say. But in reality, it's completely under the superintendence of a sovereign, wise, and good God. Much for us to observe and learn. Let's approach the text the way I have approached some other passages in Genesis. Let's look at the small picture because these are human beings with real difficult, tragic episodes in their lives. Terrible pain that would be, we'd be amiss to go over it too quickly. So let's look at the small picture, and you'll see how Jacob's family, once again, there's a demonstration of the effects of favoritism that come upon this family, the envy and the jealousy and the violence that come from it. But then let's back up for a moment and see the big picture. The life of Joseph, as it begins here, at least on display for us, it becomes a vivid depiction of how the providence of God works out. Now let's start with the small picture and see the fruit of that favoritism that we've watched develop through Jacob's life, starting with his many wives and his children from those wives and the favoritism he showed towards some wives and their children opposed to others and all the pain that's caused. 
you'll see there's a bit of a continuum that this follows, and it's certainly a cautionary tale for all of us as parents, even as individuals trying to deal fairly with people. If you notice, it begins Joseph being 17 years old, so he's very young. He's pasturing the flock with his brothers, and basically he tattles on them for something they were saying or doing or not doing. We're not told what it is in particular. Now, I would take a charitable reading of Joseph because on the whole, his life, there's a lot of blamelessness in his life compared to most biblical figures. He's naive for sure. Is he arrogant? Yes. Sinfully arrogant? Possibly. It just rolls up into how he's been raised. He's 17. He was a toddler when they came from Padamaram. They lived 10 years in Shechem. So maybe at 17, they've been at Bethel, the place where God had called them to be originally, for only five years now. So here's Joseph, probably a, a person of real principle. You know that kid that's just always got to tell the truth. The other, one, the other kids around him don't like him too much because it tells, he tells on them. There's a bit of that air. No, by no means a, a perfected individual or mature, but also I don't think he's acting maliciously. He's just being honest with his father who's shown him this great favor. But this causes tension and this causes rivalry because it's clear that he is Jacob's favorite. In fact, it says in verse 3, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons. Sons knew that. Why? Because he's a son of his old age. Also, also he was a son of Rachel, his favorite wife. Now, I don't know who gave him this idea or this advice, if it was a tool of the culture around, but I don't think any of us here would be so foolish as to give our son, who we want to keep secret as our favorite, a robe of many colors. See, he didn't want to keep it secret. He was so proud of it, didn't even think for a moment how it would affect the dynamic between the brothers. A robe of many colors, a tunic, a colorful tunic. Whatever the case, for something to be colorful in the ancient Middle East like this, it would be super expensive. To have the, the, the kind of textile or dyes that would make something stand out as colorful, this would cost a lot of money. This is a family heirloom. You wouldn't have many of these. And he has one made, it seems, and he gives it to his son Joseph, who wears it seemingly on a regular basis. It's one thing to have it, it's another thing to wear it, and he wears it. Verse 4, his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. They hated him and couldn't speak peaceably. They couldn't even stand to be in this guy's presence. The tension is palpable. The rivalry is severe. Now, this kind of unfairness between children does not go unnoticed. It never does. This is a bit of the tale or cautionary tale for us. So parents have to be very careful not to play favorites. It's true that every child is different, and they could be easier or more difficult to, to shepherd as they grow. But we have to do our best to be fair according to their personalities and such. We think of all, we wrestle with this as parents, but we should wrestle with it. When we don't, we can be subject to this kind of favoritism that really is what wreaks havoc in the family structure that Jacob is overseeing. It raises tensions. Now, I want you to notice another result of this favoritism and this, this way that Jacob has raised his family. There is a spiritual dullness among the sons that comes from their father's lack of attention in these ways. Now, what do I mean? They're so focused in on the person of Joseph that they can't step away and see what the greater lesson might be from what Joseph is about to reveal to them. 
Uh, they're so spiritually dull, they only see the carnal realities. This punk son, this brother who's a thorn in our flesh, who our father favors, is now going to share dreams with us about how he's going to rule over us. They couldn't pause for a moment and think, yes, Jacob's a little strange, or Joseph's a little strange, but just making this up, maybe there's something to this. Maybe we should think about this. The spiritual dullness stops them, hinders them from any such interpretation. It says in verse 5, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Now, I think Joseph was a little clueless. He lacked some self-awareness for sure, but he probably also was such an idealist that he thought, this is amazing what's happened, this dream I've heard. I've got to tell this to my brothers. I think that's the reading that we should take of this. He said to them, hear the dream that I've dreamed. I was binding sheaves and think of uh, bales of corn, several of them, and mine rose up over you. So what is this dream? He's, he's talking it out to try to discover what the meaning is, but that's lost on these spiritually dull brothers. You mean to say you're going to reign over us? That's what they say in verse 8. You're going to rule over us. Let me get, they say it twice. At least the author requires, says it twice. So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now I note the commentator, Calvin, at this time really, really takes umbrage with what the brothers are doing here. Because in Calvin's perspective, and he's right, the dream is a mode of revelation that God uses. He uses it in the Old Testament and other places. Interestingly, the namesake of Joseph, Joseph and Mary, he hears from God through a dream. But here we are back to this passage, recognizing that this is revelation, special revelation, information you wouldn't have any other way, and the brothers despise this. They say this is, this is, uh, this is fallacious. In fact, we're going we're gonna to thwart it. Whatever this word is you're giving us, we're going to make it so it doesn't happen. So you can see why this would upset a commentator or us we should recognize. And for that matter, anyone in the world who when the word of God reveals a truth and the world says that isn't true and we're going to fight against it. Does this sound familiar with the culture? That only goes poorly for those who despise the revelation of God. The revelation of God can be painful at times, but it's exactly what we need. Joseph's just exploring what is this dream I've been having. Well, there was no reprieve from God concerning this revelation because he dreams another dream. In verse 9, he dreamed another dream and told his brothers, and now this time it's involving Jacob and his wife. The sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, when he told his fa- this to his father and his brothers, his father said, okay, enough of this, Joseph. Enough. Stop this. What are you talking about? Now, your mother and your brothers and I, we're all going to come bow down before you? His brothers were jealous of him, verse 11. But notice what is said. His father kept the saying in mind. Remember, Jacob has met God. He's talked to God. God's talked to him. He has to think to himself, is this God now reaching out by revelation to my son? But the spiritual dullness of the atmosphere of Jacob's household causes them to miss the actual message from God. And they think they can somehow thwart what the message is that, Jacob, that Joseph gives. His brothers were jealous of him. That's what it says. Favoritism made the Jacob household very competitive. In a competitive household where everyone's upset with each other, it's very difficult to read your Bible. You can have family worship and family devotions, but if there's rivalry between the siblings, between the parents and the children, it's going to be very difficult to gain spiritual input. 
our perception spiritually will be lacking. And we'll just stop doing it. You can imagine this to be the case in Jacob's family. They took his dreams as a made-up insult rather than the revelation of God. They saw Joseph as their rival. Nothing he said would be received. When a household is not spiritually focused, it becomes a survival of the fittest environment. If the household is carnally opposed to each other and you try to put some spirituality onto it, kids see right through it and say, that's fake. We see that unfold here in the life of Jacob and his household. And this leads to this favoritism it's been leading to. We've already seen it in the brothers. They have what I would call is an unruly passion. The New Testament describes this as a sin. Not just passions and feelings. It's unruly. There's no discipline to it. It, it unravels and unleashes quickly. The brothers were jealous of him, verse 11. Look what, they say, what it says in verse 12. The brothers went, into the pasture, went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, aren't your brothers pasturing the flock? So the brothers had taken off to the south some 40 miles. It's not a little distance. Shechem, do you remember Shechem? That's where they were raised, the older brothers. That's where they were corrupted in many respects. That's where they committed the awful atrocity and were in danger by going back there. And Jacob knows all of this. And he says, Joseph, go check on your brothers. He doesn't trust them. He knows something could be up. So he sends them. Then when Joseph gets there or gets close to there, he finds out they're not even where they should be. They're actually further. He meets a guy. He's out wandering. A guy says, hey, are you looking for somebody? Put together. This is a guy connected to those guys he had met earlier. They went down to Dothan. So he has to go another 10 miles. This is not a short distance that he sends 17-year-old Joseph. It would be like going to the airport, at least first level, walking up. How long would it take you if you started now walking to the airport with no sidewalks or roads or anything? Can't hitchhike either. It's a long time, several days. So this is a long distance. Go up, find out what your brothers are doing. He gets there, they're 10 miles further. He goes then, another day's journey. Then the passions of the brothers when they see him. They cannot, I, I can imagine them thinking, I can't believe. Is that who we think? Yes, see his coat? That's him. What is he doing? Verse 18. They saw him from afar. How? Because of the coat, no doubt. And before he got close to them, they started talking about, we're going to kill him. Here's our chance. He's miles away from dad. 50 miles away from dad. Anything could happen in that in route. How will Jacob ever know? He'll never know. Now is our chance. And they're starting to conspire. There's a lot of voices talking, a lot of wrestling, avoiding, uh, vying for what should be done. They said, here comes this dreamer. Come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Their passions that were jealous and envious are now turning into murderous intent. That's what unruly passions end up doing eventually. Not only, this is as premeditated as he can get. Not only will we have a plan for killing him, we'll also know what our story is after. We'll say a fierce animal got him, devoured him. We'll see what comes of his dreams right in the face of God's revelation. We'll see what comes of this plan that he's revealed. We'll stop it. We're the sovereign ones, in effect, is what they're saying. Their first collective thought, with all these passions building up, is to kill him. But now we see Reuben, who is a complicated person, to say the least. Reuben, who was illicitly involved with one of his father's wives, probably as a way to show some power or intent to take his inheritance as the oldest. But now he sees this unfolding and he thinks to himself, as the oldest, I'm responsible for what happens here. I've got to stop this from going where it seems to be going. Let's not take his life, Reuben says. Don't, let's just throw him into one of these cisterns right now. And then, but let's not lay a hand on him. He wants to try to calm everything down. 
then later he can go back and rescue him. Now, what are these cisterns, these pits? Out in these open prairies, uh, herdsmen would dig out or hew out pits 10 to 20 feet deep. They would be into the rock, or if they weren't rock, they'd hew them out of the mud and then make a plaster-like surface, interior, so that rainwater would be caught and they could water flocks or people could drink if they needed to. But this particular cistern turns out to be empty, and that's important. Now, some of the meanest things can happen between siblings who have grown to distrust each other. I hope you don't have such an experience, but it's common enough that's likely. Uh, Something happens early, and they keep moving apart, and words get spoken, actions happen, and before they're so far opposed to one another, yet they're blood relatives. We can tend to hurt the ones who are closest to us. This particular sibling dynamic grew in the crucible of Jacob's favoritism towards Rachel and her children. Now, no parent could be perfectly fair. No question. And here we have an extreme example for sure. But I think all of us can relate a little bit with how this might unfold. And it ultimately finds itself in attempted murder. Violent actions flow from this. These passions turn to those actions. Verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, it's like there's no discussion. They stripped him of his robe, his robe of many colors. Then they put him into the pit, empty, no water in it, no hope in the pit, no way for a rescue. He couldn't get himself out of this. They didn't kill him right away. They started to think about it. And maybe one of the most amazing subtle phrases in the whole account comes next to verse 25. When you've had something really terrible happen to you or you've done something terrible, what does it do to your stomach? Well, in the case of these brothers, after they agreed to kill him and throw him in a pit, verse 25, they sat down to eat. They started eating. It's interesting that the New Test or the Old Testament later in chapter 42 gives us some insight we don't have initially. Joseph was crying out to be rescued, crying out for mercy in that pit while they were eating. Amos scolds them for this ignoring the pleadings of their brother while they ate. Then looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites is the general, the general description of the people. The Midianites has to do with the particular region the Ishmaelites come from. So they're used interchangeably. They look up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites. These are traders, those who trade various goods and such, gum, balm, and myrrh. But people were traded too. Man-stealing was part of this day. Conquering armies would uh, take as slaves those who were in the other army. Judah rises up, not Reuben, Judah, and says, hey, what profit is it if we kill our own brother? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let's not kill him and have his blood on our hands. At least he's trying to justify or rationalize now. As the Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up and they sold him for 20 shekels of silver. And the Midianites then took him on, kept going along their way to Egypt. The favoritism of Jacob in this episode through sons of different wives leads to the dynamic we're watching where they sell their own brother into slavery. It's good as dead. The ultimate end of favoritism is to hate each other. And hate is something Jesus speaks very clearly about. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You've heard it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I, Jesus, say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. On the human level, though, let's consider the story as we shift towards the big picture. On the human level, this is awful. Everything about this is awful. It just gives you a sick feeling about what's happened in this family and how far it's gone, how awful it's gone. We can already imagine what the response of Jacob, the bereaved father, would be. The tension, the rivalry, the hatred, all of it. The grief, the constant lying, the dishonesty. They hated their father and their brother in this event. Chaotic and out of control, doesn't it feel that way? That's the small picture, no question. That might be the small picture you feel you're living right now. But the story of Joseph on display with the details from God is meant for us to have a vivid example of God's providence at work. The outworking of God's providence now is how we want to look at the story we've just read and how it will continue to unfold. As we stand back and look at the whole of Joseph's life, you know the end result, I'm sure. We see how God uses this to bring Joseph to a place of power and influence that will ultimately have clear purpose in God's redemptive plan. But in the small picture, that's not recognized by the players who are involved, the people, the human beings who are living this out. Now, I want to just pause for a moment and note something. When you read the commentators on this, and maybe you've caught this too, it's hard to pass by Joseph's life and not see a parallel with the Lord Jesus himself. Joseph, his father's choice son, Joseph mistreated by his brothers, persecuted and abused by those who's trying to help. The dreams declared that Joseph would be some kind of king, but they didn't receive that response, didn't agree with that. It said he'd be king to bring a salvation from a famine, but the brothers sought to kill him instead. And he sold for silver shekels. They put him out of their sight but he goes to prepare a way for them. Now, regarding Joseph again in the big picture, there's so many details that had to work out. Have you ever thought about the specifics of what had to come to pass so that these Midianite traders happened in everything they were doing to be right at the time where they were passing when the brothers were scheming with their brother in the pit and having a meal? And even for them to get to the pit, remember, Joseph had to be wandering around because he got lost a bit on the way. There are details that seem like they're accidental, but none of it's accidental because it all works out to this moment where the brothers pull him up from the pit and sell him to the Midianites, and they go to Egypt, and the brothers go about their life and about their cover-up and everything deceitfully involved with their future days. The Westminster Confession of Faith does a good job summarizing the Bible's teaching on this doctrine of providence that you see unfolding. In the fifth chapter of the Confession, God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least. He does so by his most wise and holy providence, and it's according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. And this is all to the praise of his glory, his wisdom, his power, his justice, his goodness, and his mercy. Now, in this episode, we're going to come to learn some specifics about his plan in this moment. I'm not suggesting you'll have all your answers for the difficulty you're encountering now. I am saying that the God 
who is the Lord of this situation, is also very much entirely Lord of your life in every trial, in every victory, in every circumstance that's unfolding. There's the sovereignty of God that we love to talk about as Presbyterians. This has to do with God's kingship over creatures and events. But we should spend more time unpacking the providence of God. This has to do with the application of His sovereignty with personal involvement, providentially, in the province of our life, in the specifics of our lives. It's Candlish who said, in the history of Joseph's strange career, the particular providence of God is most signally introduced and illustrated. And I'm not just making this up because I'm a Calvinist. This is because Joseph, at the end of the book of Genesis, he, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit's inspiration, tells us what to make of all this evil his brothers have done. In Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, Joseph says to the brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it. Meant it what? Their evil actions. He meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And little did Joseph know in full completion that this would mean that many would be made alive in the future because of Jesus who would come from Israel. Even their evil cover-up is under the careful watch care, the providence of an all-wise sovereign God. We see it percolating in verse 29 when Reuben comes back to the pit and sees that Joseph is not in the pit. He tears his clothes the act of outright in public mourning. He goes to his brothers, the boy's gone, where shall I go? He realizes that he's culpable at some level as the oldest. But they go right into action. It doesn't say if they discussed her or whatever, but they already had it agreed. They took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. They sent the robe then as they went ahead of themselves to Jacob and said to Jacob, hey, is this, this Joseph's? They know it's, it's the evil of it. They know it, what they've done. How evil and devious are their actions, uncaring, disrespectful, heartless, what this would do to their father. Yes, it's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. There's no, there's no way to do a blood test on this blood. There's no such technology. This has got to be the case. Jacob knows. Jacob spent many days out fighting off animals and knowing what could befall somebody. And here he sends his son to walk all that way to see the brothers on his own. Now he's dead. That's all he can think of. And the brothers watch and they see their father mourning, crying out. He could not be could not be consoled. Then, to make it even worse, if it could get worse, verse 35, all his sons and his daughters, I don't know what his daughters knew, but we know the sons knew, they rise up and comfort him. What did they say to him? What lies did they make up? But he refused to be comforted and said, I'll go down to the grave, I'll go down to Sheol to my son mourning. His father wept for him. The level of hypocrisy and evil and maliciousness cannot be overstated. They knew what they did and the fate of Joseph, but they lied with their empty consolations nevertheless. We're told, meanwhile, while this is all going on, the Midianites by this time had already sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, someone who's the captain of Pharaoh's guard. Robert Rayburn said, well, all of this is God's doing. However much God uses the passions, even sinful passions, the choices, even sinful choices, the acts, even sinful acts of these men to bring his will to pass. 
Divine sovereignty is written large over this entire history, but God uses providential means to bring his purposes to pass. I want to draw just a few conclusionary points. First, remember when God works, he knows his end purposes. He knows them. He knows what they are on the large and what they are for you. And they are for his glory. And if you're in Christ, you're friends with God because of Christ, you could be sure of the beauty that ultimately awaits despite the difficulty in the here and the now. His end purpose for Joseph was to provide a place of incubation in Egypt for Israel, who he would lead out and continue that story of his redemption that would be realized in the person of the Messiah. He has an end purpose for Joseph's life. Joseph doesn't know all this when it's falling apart around him. His end purpose for the church is his eternal glory in Christ, magnified through us now, but ultimately realized in the new promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. We could be sure of this. On a personal level, that's his point for your eternal life. It comes anew when he gives you a new heart. You know this outlook. You're able to live in light of this, even through the difficulties that you are bearing. But you know who controls the outcome, and he knows the specifics of it. You know it generally, and that can give you some rest and some comfort in the midst of whatever you're dealing with. God knows a famine is coming. Jacob and sons don't see this at the time. They don't know what's happening, this great crisis that's looming. Joseph's placement in Egypt was God's preparation for keeping them through the famine. Joseph had no knowledge of the mysterious providence of God, but not any of it was an accident. There are things in your life that you cannot yet see. There are purposes for your hardships that you will someday understand. Some cases you'll come to know it in this life. Most cases, being honest, you probably won't. But for eternity you will, and you'll give praise to God for it. And you wouldn't want it any other way when you look back at it. You can't imagine that now. But that's, that will be the, the case for all who are in Christ. God knows what's coming next, so your life is now preparation for that. The placement of Joseph in Egypt would ensure Israel's survival and preparation for what he had next for them. Not any feature of this story that I just read to you from Genesis 37 is arbitrary or accidental. This is always true of our lives and the events therein. The Confession of Faith says, in the Catechism anyways, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures in all their actions. I can't think of very many doctrines. There are several powerful doctrines like this, but not very many that can give a believer comfort when things that are unexplicable come into your life. I'd say if they come into your life, when they come into your life. It was some 12 years ago when my dad and mom were at a movie, and my dad had a, a short period where he blacked out fell down and couldn't really explain it. Happened once before, a month before that. But this time was a little longer, so we took him to the emergency room. Generally, he was doing all right. I mean, he's 79. It was not like everything was working just perfect for him, but he didn't have that kind of problem before. So we bring him to the doctor's or to the ER, and they diagnosed him with this irregular heartbeat that would, could happen again if there wasn't something done. Didn't say he dropped dead in a week or a month or whatever it was, but they needed to do something because it's not healthy to have an irregular beat like this, especially the ventricular kind he was having. So we agreed with the doctors who said, well, a pacemaker, it's the most common way. I'll bet you there's 10 of them maybe in this, in this church. They're very common ways to control heartbeat, healthy, to give someone longevity, no doubt. Made total sense. We agreed with what the doctor said. 
It, they laid it out. I called other doctors. We have in the, yes, that's the way you treat this problem. Pretty routine. About a 30-minute surgery is what it should be. Well, after an hour and a half, they come out and say they couldn't get it placed just right. And so he came out, and they were going to have to do it by surgery. But before you knew it, he was already, his body was filling with air, and he was, his body was literally blowing up before our eyes, filling with air. They had poked his lung when they tried to put in the electrodes that go around the heart, and in so doing, it caused him great distress. And it took a while before they figured out what had happened as he starts filling up, and he was compromised for sure. And then afterwards, it just kept going downhill and downhill after that. Multiple other things that were just not done right in the days that followed. Was that all outside of God's control? I would have taken another week with him rather than two days if that's all he would have had. He would have had it if they hadn't messed it up, right? But see, God is wise, and he's sovereign over these things, and he providentially cares, and there's purpose for even that. I can't explain the specifics, but I know what the Scripture says about it on the whole, and that gives me great comfort to rest in that, because that's one of a hundred things you all can think of right now. Should have gone this way. Why did it go this way? I can't this bit. What we have on display in the life of Joseph is God's providence. His works of providence are wise, they're holy, they're powerful, preserving, and they have purpose. Purpose known only to him at the front, but will be revealed in the long term. The means for Joseph to get to Egypt seems so dependent on evil impulses, but in fact they were all under God's control. We will be tempted to think God's kingdom is losing based on the victories of the enemies. While things seem out of control, they're not out of God's control. He doesn't lose focus. His plan is inviolable. It can't be violated. John Flavel gives us this encouragement. It is the duty of the saints, especially in times of straits, to reflect on the performances of providence for them in all the states and through all the stages of their lives. The doctrine of providence, dear brothers and sisters, is a great comfort for the people of God. And Genesis puts this on display. Think of all the layers of his providence that the Scripture declares. God's providence over the natural world. Jesus says he makes the sun rise, and he makes the sun rise in the evil and the good. He sends rain in the just and the unjust. God's providence over the animals. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father, he feeds them. Are you not more value than they? How about God's providence over the nations? These kings and these dictators and these presidents and prime ministers think they run things, but Isaiah says the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust and the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Daniel says he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. God's providence over individual people. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The providence of God over the actions of people. In Philippians 2, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's providence over even the sinful actions of people. You meant for evil against me what God meant for good, Joseph says. Joseph says to his brothers eventually, you hated me, you were jealous, you planned evil, 
You meant murder. You sold me to slavery and suffering. You lied. You compounded a lie with many lies to our father, to our family. You sinned against me. You meant to sin. You're responsible for sin. No getting off of that. But you meant evil against me when God meant good for me. And he did this to bring about the saving of many lives. I close with a a wonderful challenge from Rayburn on this topic of providence that's so clearly displayed in this passage. Rayburn said, And no fact should bring greater comfort to the children of God, just as no fact ought more to send a shiver through the enemies of God and set them seeking God's mercy for themselves. As Dante said it, In his will is our peace. Our Heavenly Father is orchestrating our lives moment by moment. We know his love. We know his wisdom. We know his faithfulness because we know his Son, Jesus Christ, and what he did for us. That love is ruling every detail of our lives. That kindness is ordering our steps. Someday we will see so much more than we now see of the goodness of God. See how kind he was to his son Joseph, making him wander in order to save his life and make him the savior of others. And so he is and always shall be for all who trust in him. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we know it's true that every raindrop, every snowflake which falls from the cloud, every insect which moves, every plant which grows, every grain of dust which floats in the air has certain definite causes and certain definite effects. O Lord, it is true that each is a link in the chain of events and many of the great events of history have turned out on these apparently insignificant things. When we look at our lives, all the little tiny details here and there could have gone one way or the other. But Lord, it is a great comfort. It's a great comfort, O God, that our lives have purpose in your great plan and your hand of providence is upon all of it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us together return in response to 169. 169 is, my heart does overflow, and the elders and the ushers will come to prepare the table. We'll stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2.